There's a million things we have to do today, and worrying doesn't need to be one of them. That's why one in nine families use Life360 for safety, to connect to the people that matter most. Join today and get premium features that keep your family protected with real-time location updates, crash detection, and 24-7 roadside assistance. Because let's face it, you're more than just your to-do list, you're a family. So let's live life 360. Download for free today. Coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the award-winning Parareality Radio. My name's Sandman, and I'm going to be your host for the next two hours. Good evening, everybody, and thanks for tuning in on this Monday, July 7th, 2014. Of course, you all know that it's uh, the first Monday of the month, so that means that it's time for another episode of Parareality Radio. Well, tonight's show is the second in a three-part series about the Nazi paranormal connection. This episode, I'll be investigating the supposed secret Nazi base in Antarctica. Did the Nazis establish a secret base there in the 1930s, known as Point 211? Did the U.S. conduct a covert military attack there in 1946 and encounter Nazi UFOs? I'll be discussing all of this and more in tonight's episode. But first of all, before I get into all of that, let me tell you how you're going to be able to get in contact with me here during the show, because there are several different ways you can do it. First of all, there's the good old email, sandman at parareality.com. That's sandman at parareality.com. You can also look me up on the web at www.parareality.com, and I'm also available on Facebook just type in sandman.parareality there on Facebook, and uh, you can hook up with me there. I've got uh, tons of Facebook fans and Facebook friends, well over a 1,000 now, and uh, you can interact with me and all of the other Facebook fans that are on the Facebook page there and the people that listen to the show by going to Facebook. And finally, you can always... Still call my studio line at 615-692-1170. That number to call once again is 615-692-1170. Just feel free to call that. Leave a message. You never know. I just may answer the phone because I'm always in the studio um, working on something, even though this is a, a, a podcast and not necessarily a live show uh, anymore. 
I still have a, the occasional live show here and there, and I do still keep the studio line up and running. But I do uh, have it for, um, you know, whoever wants to call and just leave a message. Just uh, be aware that by leaving me a message, you are giving me consent to play your message or comment or whatever back on the show here. So if you don't want me to play your comment back, you better tell me whenever you leave that message or else you just may wind up on the air. So those are all the different ways that you can reach me here on Parareality Radio. So to get right into the show tonight, I've got a lot of stuff that I got to cover. And to be honest, I'm, I have a, a two hour show and, uh, I usually allot a minimum of, of, well, maximum of 90 minutes to, to cover the material. And then the, the last half hour of the show, I, um, do the paranormal review. And, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fit everything in to this 90 minute segment. So I may have a little bit, uh, a little bit over. I'm going to try to keep it to two hours. So I may have to cut down a little bit on the material or who knows, I may just, uh, not do a paranormal review this episode. Who knows? We'll see. I'm just going to get right into it. Let me take a little drink of water here. And we're going to start talking about a secret Nazi base in Antarctica. With the mysterious happenings in Antarctica concerning Lake Vostok, uh, an, an old theory is being resurrected that the German Nazis as early as the 1930s may have built a secret base at the South Pole. While this idea is undoubtedly something that will strike a lot of people as, well, absurd, there is tantalizing evidence to suggest that something along this line might actually have some truth to it. Long-standing banking and business connections allowed high-ranking German leaders back in 1944 to forge a formidable Nazi-controlled organization for post-war activities. An author by the name of Jim Keith wrote the following. In researching the shape of totalitarian control during this century, I saw that the plans of the Nazis manifestly did not die with the German loss of World War II. The ideology many of the principal players survived and flourished after the war and have had a profound impact on post-war history and on events taking place today. The U.S. Treasury Department's Director of Foreign Funds Control, Orvis Schmidt, back in 1945, offered this description of a Nazi flight capital program. The network of trade, industrial, and cartel organizations has been streamlined and intermeshed, not only organizationally, but also by what has been officially described as personnel union. Legal authority to operate this organizational machinery has been vested in the concerns that have majority capacity in the key industries such as those producing iron and steel, coal, and basic chemicals. These concerns have been deliberately welded together by exchanges of stock to the point where a handful of men can make policy and other decisions that affect us all. Well, could one of those decisions have been the creation of a Nazi base connected to the development of UFOs? While this 
idea may superficially appear to be sheer nonsense, the public record offers a compelling, if maybe a little bit incomplete, evidence to support this idea. One theory is that Martin Bormann and other top Nazis escaped to South America onto a secret base in Antarctica where they built UFOs so sophisticated that their secret Nazi empire has exerted significant control over world events and governments to this very day. While there can be no question that the business and financial network created by Mormon, Borman wields a, a certain amount of power even today, evidence for the existence of a major Nazi base containing UFOs is virtually non-existent consisting primarily primarily of the known exploration of Antarctica's Queen Maud land, renamed New Schwabenland by the Germans. This was in 1938, and there's also been a few other unverified statements about this. Reportedly, German Navy Grand Admiral Karl Donitz said in 1943, and I quote, the German submarine fleet is proud of having built for the Fuhrer in another part of the world a Shangri-La on land, an impregnable fortress. And it's been reported that U.S. Admiral Richard Byrd, upon his return from an expedition to Antarctica in 1947, said the following, that it was necessary for the USA to take defensive actions against enemy air fighters which come from the polar regions and that America could be attacked by fighters that are able to fly from one pole to the other with incredible speed. Now, advancing the idea that Nazis continually shipped men and material to the South Pole throughout the war years, Arthur R.A. Harbinson said, regarding the possibility of the Germans building self-sufficient underground research factories in the Antarctic, it is only to be pointed out that the underground research centers of Nazi Germany were gigantic feats of construction containing wind tunnels, machine shops, assembly plants, launching pads, supply dumps, and accommodation for all who worked there, including adjoining camps for slaves, and yet very few people knew that these things existed. But, while tales of a secret Nazi base in Antarctica may appear plausible to some, myself included, the idea that a warm water location at the South Pole has remained undiscovered and no one has escaped or deserted the place in more than, what, 60 or 70 years, it, it stretched, has stretched belief to the breaking point. But with new revelations of 60 to 70 degree temperature water, magnetic anomalies suggesting the possibility of a hidden city or base, and the obvious back out taking place concerning current events at the pole, the idea of a secret base is no longer that far-fetched of an idea. Bang my elbow on the desk there, you probably heard that. Rumors began to circulate while Germany had been defeated a section of military personnel and scientists had fled the fatherland as Allied troops swept across mainland Europe, and that these people established themselves at a secret base on the Antarctic continent from where they continued to develop their advanced aircraft technology. Furthermore, it's interesting to note 
that at the end of the war, the Allies determined that there were 250,000 Germans unaccounted for. And that's even taking into the account all of the casualties and deaths. So, could New Schwabenland have been permanently manned at this German base at that time? Well, the brackish water of the 30-degree lakes confirmed that all had an outlet to the sea and would have been a haven for the German U-boats. The two ice-free mountain ranges in New Schwabenland presented no worse an underground tunneling project for Organization Tot than anything they had encountered and overcome in Norway. The Germans were the world's experts in building and inhabiting underground cities, metropolises, if you will. At the end of World War II, the U.S. gave anything concerning Ordorf a top-secret classification for 100 years upwards. Now, Ordorf was a um, Nazi concentration camp where uh, they had began building a huge series of underground complexes, and, and this was never completed. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, the, the Allied troops were, when they discovered this, were absolutely flabbergasted at the complexity of the as-yet-unfinished facility there at Ordorf. The fact that there had been substantial underground workings there had been absolutely and completely concealed by the Nazis. Now, fortunately for researchers, in 1962, the, the DDR had taken sworn depositions from all local residents during an investigation into wartime Ordorf. And upon the reunification of the two Germanies back in 1989, these documents became available to everybody. And uh, they were kept at the Arnstadt Municipal Archive. Now, from the Arnstadt documents, it's clear that the Charity on Long Unit operated in a three-story underground bunker with floors 70 by 20 meters in diameter. And if you remember from last episode on the first part of the Nazi Paranormal Connection where I was talking about Dyke Lock or the bell, that was what the uh, Charity on Long was what the uh, the bell, that's the one of the secret names that the bell was working under. Now, when working, this bell, this device emitted some kind of energy field which shut down all electrical equipment and non-diesel engines within a range of about eight miles. For this reason, even though Ordorf was crawling with SS, it was never photographed from the air, nor was it bombed. Declassified U.S. Air Force documents dated sometime in early 1945 admit the existence of an unknown energy field over Frankfurt and other locations which, fantastic though it may appear, were able to interfere with the U.S. aircraft engines as high as 30,000 feet. Ordorf, rebuilt below New Swabenland during the last two years of the war, wouldn't have been difficult, and since Charity on Long 
had the highest priority of anything in the Third Reich, if you remember that from the last episode, it seems likely that it must have been. Such a base would have been impregnable, for the suggestion is that the force field worked in various ways favorable to the occupants. Now, a remarkable event occurred in 1999, but only specialists paid really adequate enough attention to it. A research expedition discovered a virus in Antarctica, and at that, neither people nor animals had immunity to this thing. After all, Antarctica is far away. For this very reason, the virus can't really be dangerous for the rest of the planet, especially since the dangerous discovery was deep down in the permafrost. However, scientists say that against the background of a global warming threatening the planet, the unknown virus can cause an awful catastrophe for our little planet Earth here. Expert Tom Starmeroon from the University of New York also shares this pessimistic forecast of his colleagues. And he says, quote, We don't know what the mankind will face in the South Pole in the nearest time due to the global warming. It is not ruled out that an unbelievable catastrophe may break out. Viruses protected with a protein cover survive even in the permafrost. As soon as the temperature gets warmer, they will immediately start reproducing. American scientists treated the Antarctica discovery very seriously and even organized a special expedition that currently tests the ice for unknown viruses in order to develop an antidote, hopefully ahead of time. So what is the source of the virus in Antarctica where only penguins and polar bears and stuff like that can survive in the ice? There's no answer to the question and scientists are at a loss. However, several theories concerning the problem have been put forward. A majority of scientists are inclined to believe that prehistoric forms of life probably survived in the permafrost, but some people blame uh, bronzes of the Third Reich for delivery of a secretly developed bacteriologic weapon to Antarctica. And this theory arose not in a vacuum. It's well known that already in 1938, Nazis suddenly became interested in Antarctica and they organized two expeditions to the area in 1938 and 1939. Now at first, planes of the Third Reich took detailed pictures of unexplored territories and then they dropped several thousands of metal pinions with, with swastikas there. The whole of the explored territory was called New Schwabenland and was considered a part of the Third Reich. After the expedition, Captain Reitscher reported to Field Marshal Goring, and this is what he said, The planes dropped the pinions 25 kilometers apart. We covered the area of about 8.600,000 square meters. 350,000 square meters of them were photographed. In 1943, Grand Admiral Carl Donitz dropped a remarkable phrase, and I'll repeat this, 
Germany's submarine fleet is proud that it created an unassailable fortress for the Fuhrer on the other end of the world. I've already repeated, I've already said that once. That's a repeat because I think that's an important um, sentence or phrase. Why would he say something like that if it wasn't true? Now, I know that the Nazis were famous for propaganda and lies. Could that have been something that the Nazis were trying to allude to to make it seem like they really had more than what they did? They were really famous for doing that. Or was that statement, in fact, a true statement? It highly likely means that the Nazis were building a secret base in Antarctica sometime between 1938 and 1943. Submarines were mostly used for transportation of necessary freight to the place. As specialists for the Third Reich wrote, at the end of World War II, the submarines were relieved of their torpedo arms in the port of uh, Kiel and then were loaded with containers with different goods in them. The submarines also received passengers whose faces were hidden behind surgical masks for some reason. A man named Wilhelm Bernhard was commander of one of the submarines. As a matter of fact, his uh, submarine was U-530. Now, this submarine left the point of Kiel on April 13, 1945. When it reached the shores of Antarctica, 16 members from the crew built an ice cave and put boxes in there. It was allegedly said that the boxes contained relics of the Third Reich, including Hitler's documents and personal belongings. The operation was codenamed, interestingly enough, Valkyrie 2. When the operation was over, on the 10th of July, 1945, submarine U-530 entered the uh, Argentinian point of Mar del Plata and surrendered to the authorities. Now, it's also said that another submarine from the uh, formation, uh, a uh, number U-977, under the command of Heinz Schaefer, delivered the remains of Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun to New Schwabenland. It followed the route of U-530 and called uh, and Antarctica its destination. And the submarine arrived once again in Mar del Plata on August 17, 1945. The same Mar del Plata where U-530 wound up. So it apparently followed the direct path of U-530. Now, here's something interesting. The, the version of Wilhelm Bernhard and Heinz Schaefer saying the submarines delivered relics to the Antarctic shores. Uh, now, both captains told it at interrogations held by the American and British Intelligence Services, and they told this separately. Now, it, it seems rather dubious, okay? It's unlikely that the serious operation was designed only for the sake of delivery of Third Reich documents and relics, right? Uh I don't think that what was left of the Nazi party at that time would have uh, 
commissioned such a uh, a mission just to hide relics, unless this was something that the Fuhrer had decreed prior to his suicide. And, and even after his death, if you know anything about World War II, you know that there were still people who were insanely loyal to Adolf Hitler, even though he was dead. So it could have been something of that nature where they were trying to um, hide his body and his personal belongings from the Allies. So you never know. We, we probably won't ever know. Now, getting back to the story here, later on, Special Services seized a confidential letter of Captain Schaefer to his friend, Captain Wilhelm Bernhard, who obviously planned to publish his memoirs. And the letter was dated uh, June the 1st, 1983. And I just so happened to have a copy of that letter sitting right here in front of me. And this is what it says. Dear Willie, I was thinking if it is reasonable to publish your manuscript concerning the U-530. The three submarines that took part in that operation, U-977, U-530, and U-465, are currently at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Isn't it better to leave them there? My old friend, think about it. Think, please, how then my book will look when you publish your memoirs. We all made an oath to keep the secret. We did nothing wrong. We just obeyed the orders and fought for our loved Germany and its survival. Please think again. Isn't it better to picture everything as a fable? What results do you plan to achieve with your revelations? Think about it, please. Now, after World War II, Hein Schaefer, the author of that letter, um, wrote a book named U-977, and obviously there were things in there that he omitted, did not want the world to know, and he was scared that uh, Wilhelm Bernhard was going to um, maybe expose some stuff that shouldn't be exposed. So that's why he was begging him to you know, not do this and to think about it. Even 40 years after the events, Heinz insisted that Bernhard mustn't tell the truth. Is it possible that the submarines delivered something more dangerous to the continent and not just simply Hitler's documents, not his personal belongings, and not his, his remains? I think that's possible. Could it be the bacteriological weapon traces of which were discovered in Antarctica as unknown viruses in the permafrost? Could that be what it was? Maybe so. Quite recently, giant subterranean lakes with water temperatures exceeding 18 degrees Celsius or 64 degrees Fahrenheit were discovered under the kilometer-thick Antarctic ice. Domed-shaped ice caves filled with warm air arch over the surface of the water and they're big enough to have served as secret U-boat bases. So, it's possible that a U-boat could have reached these secret bases by diving under the ice, 
because warm water currents originating from the lakes, which are constantly warmed from below, flow under the ice and into the ocean. These bases would have offered all imaginable advantages, protection from storms and ice, as well as being rendered virtually invisible and invulnerable to any foe. If the Germans had wanted to build secret bases or zones that had uh, an extraterritorial status, the polar zones, including Antarctica, constituted the ideal territory. There are actual records and supporting documents which indicate the existence of a Nazi base in Antarctica referred to as B-211 in early 1939 after its one of its successful expeditions. Now, there was a ship called Schwabenland and it began a commuter, commuter service between Germany and the South Pole continent whereby they not only transported the most modern mining engineering trolleys, rails, and gigantic tunneling presses, but they also brought in scientists from different fields, engineers, highly skilled workers. The most likely of all the hypotheses next to the exploration or exploitation, excuse me, of natural resources or control of the region is no doubt that the Nazis desire to have a secure escape point in the event of a wartime defeat, as well as their obsession to somehow penetrate into the legendary inner earth. Because you know the Nazis were into all kind of uh, alternate beliefs. After 1942, the systematic relocation of German scientists, important skilled personnel, and members of the NSDAP to New Schwabenland had begun. This is the reason why numerous scientists who the Americans had hoped to obtain for their own military research endeavors suddenly disappeared after the end of the war without a trace. It's also the case that the fate and whereabouts of at least 100 German U-boats are still unknown to this day. Now, if you had been a warmocked soldier at the bombed-out railroad station in Poltava, a city in the Ukraine during the summer of 1942, you may have seen a very strange-looking military unit on the march headed for a waiting passenger train. The unit consisted of women all of them blonde-haired and blue-eyed, all between the ages of 17 and 24, and they were all tall and slender. And they were clad in sky-blue uniforms. Imagine that, these sensational figures of these tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed young women, all in the same uniform, marching down the road. Each woman wore an Italian-style garrison cap, an A-line skirt with the hem below the knee, and a form-fitting jacket with the insignia of the SS on it. You might have thought that the SS had recruited uh, high-class call girls or something, but the truth was really far stranger than that. What you would have been looking at would have been Reichsführer SS Heinrich Himmler's latest brainstorm, the Antarctic Settlement Women 
or ASF. The story actually begins in 1938 when the German seaplane carrier Swabenland sailed across the South Atlantic bound for Queen Maudsland in Antarctica. Now, there's a uh, Russian ufologist named Konstantin Ivanenko who says that the Schwabenland sailed to America com- commanded by Albert Richter, a veteran of cold weather operations. The Richter expedition scientists used their large seaplanes to explore the polar waste emulating Admiral Richard E. Byrd's efforts a decade earlier. The German scientists discovered ice-free lakes heated by underground volcanic features and were able to land on these things. And it's widely believed that the Schwabenlands expedition was aimed at scouting out a secret base of operations. A German base was established in the Mulig-Hoffman Mountains, just inward, or just inland, from the Princess Astrid coast. The area was renamed New Schwabenland, or New Schwabia, and the base was known only as Station 211. Now, from the movie Schindler's List, people have often gotten the idea that killing Jews was the Nazis' main concern. But in actual fact, Hitler and the SS were just as ruthless with the rest of the population in their empire, thinking nothing of you know shuffling large numbers of people around in their quest for a more perfect Aryan race. They killed off a lot of people, not just the Jews. This shuffle was accomplished by a little-known office of the SS called the Germans for Race and Settlement Bureau. In the Ukraine alone, they drafted 500,000 women for forced labor in the munitions factories in Nazi Germany. It was this office, this branch, which selected women for Hitler's unit of Antarctic settlement women. About half of the so-called recruits were ethnic Germans whose ancestors had settled in the Ukraine in the 17th and 18th centuries. The others were native Ukrainians who the German Race for Settle- Race and Settlement Bureau had upgraded to full Aryans. This process was called Germanization. Now, there's a lot of increased popularity for the idea of a German Slavonic and Arctic Reich. It's said that 10,000 of the racially most pure Ukrainians out of half a million deported in 1942 by Martin Bormann were transported to the German Antarctic bases during World War II in the portion of four Ukrainian women to one German man. That's, that's pretty good, man. Four to one. I, I take those odds. Now, this is true. This would mean that Himmler transferred 2,500 Waffen SS soldiers who had proven themselves in combat on the Russian front to Station 211, now called New Schwabenland, in Antarctica. This may be the source of the myth of the last SS battalion. A training camp for these women was set up in Estonia, 
It was a combination of finishing school and boot camp where the ladies took lessons in charm and housekeeping along with their other courses in polar survival. Himmler kept the camp's existence a closely guarded secret, and for those women who were unhappy campers, the only escape consisted of a one-way train ticket to Auschwitz. Now, the failure of uh, Karl Donitz's U-boat offensive by May 1943 freed up dozens of what they call milk cow U-boats. These were large submarines, almost as as big as tramp steamers, which Donitz had used to supply his U-boat wolf packs in remote seas of the world. Himmler now pulled these things to work carting supplies and personnel back and forth to Antarctica. Himmler's rationale for sending thousands of settlers to Antarctica can only be understood within the context of his mystic beliefs. As a result of his his youthful reading of New Age books, his association with occultist uh, Dr. Frederick Wenzel and his membership in the Ardeman, Himmler became a believer in the Hindu concept of world ages. He believed that the current age would end in a global cataclysm, thereby giving birth to a new world age. By sending a Nazi colony to Antarctica, Himmler was ensuring that a remnant of the pure Aryan race would survive the coming cataclysm with, with its society and its culture intact. They would then take possession of Antarctica when the cataclysm melted the South Polar Ice Cap. According to believers, the new Schwabenland colony survived not only to the end of World War II, but also a full-on battle with the 3,500 Marines and aircraft of Operation High Jump. The total population of Nazis in Antarctica is believed to at one point exceeded 2 million and many of them supposedly have undergone plastic surgery in order to move about with greater ease through South America and conduct all manner of business transactions. Some people call this the Antarctic Reich. One of the most militarily powerful states in the world because it can destroy the USA several times over with its submarine-based nuclear missiles, remaining itself invulnerable to U.S. nuclear strikes because of the two-mile-thick ice shield that it sits under. Now, this is all speculation, of course. Now, to kind of further these claims that people are making... They also say that the city of New Berlin, the colony's capital, sprawls through narrow subglacial tunnels under some sort of unnamed mountain range heated by volcanic vents. It's also believed that New Berlin adjoins the prehistoric ruins of Kedith, which may have been built by settlers from the lost continent of Atlantis well over 100,000 years ago. Now, these are some outrageous claims I know, and even though I do think that the possibility that there 
is or was a secret Nazi base and in Antarctica. I'm not really um, buying all of these far-fetched things with um, two million people having plastic surgery and this great big city that's built up with the remains of Atlantis. I'm just not a big proponent of that. Still, other fringe researchers claim that the actual ruins of Atlantis have been found and possibly reoccupied under the Antarctic ice. Some say that Atlantis is located near one of the 70 or so warm water lakes that have been discovered miles beneath the polar ice sheet, such as Lake Vostok, near the Russian base at the Pole of Inaccessibility. Another of the often made claims about New Berlin is that the city has an alien quarter where aliens like Palladians, Zeta Reticulans, Reptoids, uh, Men in Black, and other visitors from beyond our solar system live with these Germans, these Nazis. As we all have seen, the Nazis were working on some very advanced aircraft, some of which may have been capable of leaving the Earth's atmosphere, but I don't know if they were that advanced. However, we still don't know exactly what the bell was, what it did, how it operated. So, maybe they did find out how to leave this planet and go somewhere else. Maybe they developed that technology on their own, or maybe, just maybe, they were using technology that they reverse-engineered from a crashed UFO, or technology that was supplied to them by some civilization outside of our Earth. Some researchers are convinced that the Nazis did indeed make it to the moon and even to Mars. Could they have made contact with space aliens once they left Earth? Or could their rockets, Foo Fighters, and disc aircraft have attracted aliens to visit them? Now, a claim floats around in modern UFO lore that an extraterrestrial craft with anti-gravity propulsion crashed in the uh, Schwarzland in the summer of 1936 and was recovered by the Nazis who back-engineered it. And that explains their flying saucer program. Now, this parallels stories of a similarly recovered crash saucer near Roswell in 1947 here in the States. Um, supposedly, you know, we Americans back-engineered this UFO, which supposedly led to the discovery of the the uh, discovery of the transistor, um, uh, fiber optics, and other exotic technologies. Now, reports or talk about the Antarctic Reich is becoming more and more popular in Russia, Poland, and the Ukraine, as well as Belarus, and other countries in Eastern Europe. Now, in May... Uh, May the 10th, to be exact, 2003, an issue of the uh, newspaper, um, and I'm, I'm going to mess this up, Frankfurter Augmen, a, a, a 
a, a Polish journalist uh, criticized Poland's decision to send troops to Iraq to assist with the Allied occupation. At the end, he said, the next Polish government will sign a treaty with Antarctica and declare war on the USA. Now, supposedly, this statement was also broadcast on a shortwave radio station called Dushwell the uh, the same week. Uh, some analysts compared this sentence to famous code phrases which started wars in the 20th century, such as, over all of Spain, the sky is cloudless in 1936 and climb Mount Nikita in 1941. Climb Mount Nikita was the signal uh, that Admiral uh, Yamamoto sent to Kido Butai, the Imperial Japanese Navy's fleet, to begin the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, it's strange to think of a large population living under the ice of Antarctica, totally divorced from the mainstream world. But then again, there are groups of people who live in remote areas of the world who have had no contact with modern civilization and, um, you know, worship airplanes. You have the cargo cults, you know, back several years ago. So it's not that far-fetched um, to think that there could be, you know, a, a colony living somehow in Antarctica. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's not totally implausible. So let's take a look here. Let's shift gears and let's take a look at NASA and the U.S. Navy uh, conducting a clandestine search in Antarctica. On December 30th, 1946, a U.S. Navy patrol plane with a crew of nine mapping the Antarctic coast as part of a military effort called Operation High Jump crashed in a snowstorm after its radar failed to detect a slope not shown on the charts. Now, the U.S. Navy piggybacking on scientific explorations of western Antarctica has begun an effort to locate the plane and recover the remains of the crew members who died. The crew members and their plane were part of what remains to this day the largest expedition ever in Antarctica. Operation High Jump, as I just said. It was, it was led by the renowned polar explorer Rear Admiral Richard E. Byrd and consisted of 13 ships, 23 aircraft, with a total of 4,700 men. According to a 1946 Navy memorandum, the, the mission's goal was consolidating and extending U.S. sovereignty over Antarctic areas, investigating possible base sites, and extending scientific knowledge in general. Aircraft reconnaissance began near Antarctica at the end of 1947, in January 1947, excuse me. Mostly the northern area around Queen Maudland and covered more than 22,000 air kilometers as well as capturing more than 70,000 photographs. Then suddenly, something very puzzling happened. The research voyage scheduled for five months, was abruptly and without any kind of public acknowledgement canceled 
after just two months in what almost seemed to be some sort of a panic mode. Equally puzzling is how the operation's early end was all but covered as a veil of silence in the world press while its beginning had caused such a big media stir. So what happened? Well, Dr. Dmitry Flipowitz, a high-ranking officer in the Russian military, says that he knows. This is what he says. Or torpedo boat destroyer and numerous aircraft were lost and dozens of soldiers and officers were killed. Upon his return, Admiral Byrd told the members of the Special Government Committee verbatim, in case of a new war, the U.S. would be attacked by fighters that are able to fly from one pole to the other with incredible speed. After his fleet precipitously left the Antarctic at the beginning of March 1947, Richard Byrd conducted his only interview with Lee Van Atta, the El Mercurio newspaper correspondent from Santiago, Chile, who was allowed to accompany the expedition as a journalist. Van Atta wrote, Admiral Byrd declared today that it was imperative for the United States to initiate immediate defense measures against hostile airplanes originating from polar regions. He also emphasized it is important to remain in alarm status and be vigilant along the entire ice belt, which is the last bulwark against an invasion. According to the Russian military, um, upon returning to Washington, Byrd supposedly spoke of an assault on the expedition, an assault by flying saucers that surfaced out of the water at high speeds and caused drastic losses to his fleet. Experienced fighter pilot John Sayerson, witness and crew member of the expedition, supposedly described this dramatic battle on February 26, 1947, with the following words. The things popped out of the water like they were being chased by the devil and flew at such high speeds between the mast that the antenna between the wind eddy ripped. Some airplanes that were able to get into the air off of the Casablanca were hit moments later by unfamiliar blasts that came from the flying saucers and crashed next to the ships. I was on deck on the Casablanca at the time and was totally taken aback. These things did not make a single sound as they flew between our ships and spit deadly fire. Suddenly, the torpedo boat destroyer Maddock, which was about 10 cable lengths away from us, went up in flames and began to sink. Rescue boats from other ships were sent despite the danger. The night baron lasted for about 20 minutes. When the flying saucers dove again under the water, we began to count our losses. They were appalling. So assuming John Sayerson exists and that he's telling the truth, who did these flying saucers belong to? Perhaps the Third Reich, as some sources persistently claim to this very day? Let us suppose that the American intelligence services 
actually had at their disposal information that proved the relocation of important technology and scientists to Antarctica. Then it would be self-evident why the polar area attracted its interest. In all likelihood, this information was actually so disconcerting that the American government provided the polar explorer Richard Byrd with an all-out military resource for the annihilation of the suspected Nazi base in Antarctica, which basically turned out to be an unsuccessful plan. When the Cold War started turning more frigid by the month, the venture unnerved the Soviet Union. The Soviet whaling fleet had just begun plying Antarctic waters in a military publication called Red Fleet warned that the operation was proof American military circles were seeking to subject the polar regions to their control. Argentina and Chile weren't too happy about this either. Both countries had their own overlapping claims to areas extending from the tip of South America. Their fears of an American incursion were heightened when Chile asked Washington's permission to send an observer along, but was turned down. Now, there's a couple of books written in the 1970s, uh, one of them by Wilhelm Landig and uh, uh, a man named Ernst Zundel, who was basically an outcast ufologist. And these um, men in their books claimed that Operation High Jump was literally the last battle of World War II. Now, Zundel wrote um, two books, one in 1978 called uh, In uh, Secret Nazi Polar Expeditions, and another in 1979 called uh, Hitler at the South Pole. Now, Zundel claimed that uh, Heinrich Himmler had founded this SS colony in Antarctica called New Schwabenland, and the base was known as Point 211, which eventually became the Antarctic Reich. Now, we've already gone all over this, right? Now, opinion is sharply divided about the final fate of New Schwabenland, though. Some argue that the Nazis abandoned their Antarctic sanctuary in the 60s and, and moved to sites in the Andes. Another group claims that the, that the Antarctic Reich still exists and has grown into this civilization under the ice around... Two million people, some claim even three million people of German and Ukrainian descent. Now, there are people who are called redemptionists, and they believe that Adolf Hitler escaped from Berlin in April 1945, traveled to southern Argentina in a U-boat, and from there traveled to New Schwabenland in a Nazi flying saucer. Hitler supposedly lived in Antarctica until 1952, when he reportedly traveled to the moon and met with aliens from space. These aliens took him to Aldebaran, a uh, place that was 68 light years from Earth. Now, according to the story, someday Hitler will return with an Aldebarani space armada. That is so far-fetched that even I can't believe it. <laughs> um, it's 
just preposterous to think that uh, anything like that would be would be possible. And even let's just go out on a limb. I got to take a drink of water here. Let's just go out on a limb and say, okay, this happened. He went to the moon, met with aliens, and got taken to to the alien home planet. He still would be dead by now, unless those aliens have some way of extending his life. Because the man would be, my God, a hundred years old or older right now. So, it, it, I just, I can't. I can't believe that. I just... <laughs> I'm just... I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. That I just can't... I, I can't put any... credence into that. So I'm just going to drop that right there. So on November the 27th, 2004, the Navy undertook the initial flight to try to locate the wreckage of the George I, the the plane that crashed in 1946. The search flight was a joint one conducted aboard a a Chilean Navy Orion P-3 aircraft with a Chilean crew and NASA scientists who working together with Chileans or the Chileans. It, It just wasn't a routine task. It was a challenge to find clues that could help locate the plane, even though they knew it would be almost impossible to get because of the ice and snow that had piled up over all the years. Now, during an 11-hour flight from and back to uh, Punta Arenas, the extreme south southern point of Chile, the search plane dipped as low as 500 feet over Thurston Island so scientists could use radar and lasers to try to locate the remains of uh, the Navy seaplane. Even today, it's not easy, but they can rely on information from satellites, GPS systems, and wind predictions. But from the time they took off until the time they arrived in the area, they had no idea what to expect. Though little known in the outside world, the three men who died in the 1946 crash, Wendell K. Henderson, Maxwell Lopez, and Frederick Williams, are still celebrated in Antarctica as heroes. At Maduro Station, a U.S. research base on the edge of the Ross Ice Shelf, there is a plaque to honor these three men who were the first Americans to die on any of Admiral Byrd's many expeditions. There are lines of magnetic force emanating from the South Magnetic Pole. What's strange about the North and South Pole is the way at which the magnetic lines of force move. The magnetic lines of force originate from a hole just off the coast of Antarctica. Many UFOs fly directly north-south along South America. If you can draw a line from South America through the Antarctic bases of Chile 
through the south pole to the south magnetic pole. Then you get a straight line. What's interesting about this potential UFO route is that UFOs coming from inside the Earth would end up flying over the America South Pole base. However, the line of flight is such that only places in the Antarctic where you'd stand a chance of seeing these UFOs is in the Wendell Sea area where South American countries have their bases and at the Scott base at the South Pole. The other parts of the UFO route is somewhat offset from the commonly traveled route, so there's little chance of running into UFOs by accident at any other places. That would explain why the U.S. government doesn't like visitors to the South Pole base. It's not that the hole is at or near the South Pole base, but along the route from the real hole in the oceans off the coast. Back in 1983, a man by the name of Bob Borneo wrote an article called UFO Bases Found in Antarctica. And I'm going to read you some from this article because he quotes uh, certain scientists who at the time believed that there was a subterranean UFO base there. And uh, this is what, I'm, and I'm, I'm not going to read the whole entire article, but this is, I'm going to read ep excerpts from it. So this is basically what I'm going to do here. The continuous rumors about German U-boat activity in the region of Tierra del Fuego between the southernmost tip of Latin America and the continent of Antarctica are based on true happenings. Almost one and a half years after cessation of the hostilities in Europe, the Icelandic whaler Juliana was stopped by a large German U-boat. The Juliana was in the Antarctic region around Malvinas uh, when a German submarine surfaced and raised the German official naval flag of mourning, red with a black edge. The submarine commander sent out a boarding party which approached the Juliana in a rubber dinghy and having boarded the whaler demanded of Captain Helka part of his fresh food stocks. The request was made in the definite tone of an order to which resistance would have been unwise. The German officer spoke a correct English and paid for his provisions in U.S. dollars giving the captain a bonus of $10 for each member of the Juliana crew. Whilst the foodstuffs were being transferred to the submarine, the submarine commander informed Captain Helka of the exact location of a large school of whales. Later, the Juliana found the school of whales where designated. Okay, so to address that story, to this day, there has never been any Icelandic whaler in the South Atlantic, let alone in Antarctica. No, no Icelandic ship has ever been named Juliana, and Helka is an active volcano in Iceland, not a last name. 99% of all Icelandic last names for males end in S-O-N, or son. Now, as a kind of a little side note to all of this. There is a tale about Hitler surviving the war and living in Argentina. And this 
is an old theory. It first surfaced in a book called uh, Hitler is Alive back in 1947. And there was another book that was published in 1969 that was called We Want You, Is Hitler Alive? And then another book in 1974 was written and out of these books has sprung the saucer Nazi theories. Now, both theories agree that Hitler escaped from the Fuhrer bunker in Berlin and fled to Argentina in a U-boat. However, believers in the Antarctic Reich theory contend that Hitler left Argentina in the early 1950s and moved to New Schwabenland and here they say he lived out his life resuming his artist career and painting a series of Antarctic icecapes. Or if you want to go back in to the, the prior thing where he escaped to the moon and met with aliens and then was flown off in a UFO or whatever. I just don't. I can't even go back there. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> okay, so prior to World War II, German scientists were obsessed with Antarctica. Far from finding a desolate wasteland covered with ice, the Germans discovered ice-free areas, warm water lakes, and cavern systems. We've already talked about all this. Hitler's dream was of a thousand-year Reich. Is this a thinly-veiled counterpart to Jesus' millennial kingdom? I don't know. Allied pilots reported seeing Foo Fighters during the latter stages of World War II, these craft appeared and vanished at incredible speeds and created electrical and magnetic anomalies when close to Allied aircraft. Now, these craft are similar to flying saucers that were reported initially in 1947. Are these the same uh, flying saucers that was reported in Admiral Byrd's uh, exploration of Antarctica? Mm, I don't know. Maybe so. Nazi leaders were known for their obsession with the occult, including astrology and ancient relics. Remember the Indiana Jones movies that used Nazi quests for the, the holiest relics of the Judeo-Christian faith? These movies were based on the occultic practices of the Nazis. One relic they were fascinated with and may actually have possessed was the Spear of Destiny that pierced the uh, side of Christ and I, I'd done a show I've way back several years ago about Hitler's obsession with the Spear of Destiny. Hitler's corpse was never found. Reports of opened KGB files assert that Hitler's bones were kept and then destroyed by Soviet intelligence. But the current incarnation of Russia is a wolf in sheep's clothing, and there is little faith in the KGB. UFO abductee Barney Hill, who in the 1960s was one of the first publicized abductees, claimed under hypnosis that one of his abductors looked like a German Nazi. Other abductees claimed seeing Nazi-style decorations or hearing German or German-accented voices as part of their abduction experience. 
Under Operation Paperclip, Nazi scientists and intelligence officers were integrated into the military, NASA, and the intelligence community. Werner von Braun is the most famous and is remembered for being the genius behind the Saturn rockets. The most infamous, though, was Reinhard Gellert, a major uh, general in the Nazi Abwar, or intelligence agency. Gellin was sponsored by the Dulles brothers. Uh, John Foster Dulles was a founding member of the CFR and served as President Eisenhower's Secretary of State. Allen was a president of the CFR and was the director of Central Intelligence, head of the CIA, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Not only has the CIA been implicated in the assassination of JFK, Allen Dulles was a member of the Warren Commission, the investigative body, JFK researchers argue was the government's official cover-up of the conspiracy. German wealth, much of it looted from nations conquered during World War II, was spirited out of Germany. The U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce, a man by the name of Stuart Eisenstadt, reported the following concerning the Nazi treasury. The evidence presented in this report is incontrovertible. The Swiss National Bank and private Swiss bankers knew as the war progressed that the Reich banks, the German central bank, owned coffers had been depleted and that the Swiss were handling vast sums of looted gold. When World War II ended and Europe was being overrun by the Allies, the country in charge of each sector of Europe, in our sector, we backed trucks to the former production facilities and hauled off all the documents. Everyone else did the same thing. Some 12 years later, the Australians recover, or discovered a 16mm film, a technical report of the German V7 research project. The V7 weapons research project involved a circular disc-shaped craft. Now, we knew about programs V1 through V4, but we didn't have any idea about the V7 program. Five or six either, apparently, you know. The information seemed to indicate that the Germans built their first operational disc sometime in the early 40s in the first production facility in Prague. Then they proceeded to expand their design, development, and research teams until by the time the Germans were being driven back into Germany, they had nine research facilities, all with projects under testing. They successfully evacuated... Um, how many of these did they successfully evacuate? Um, eight of those facilities out of Germany, along with the scientists and the key people. The ninth facility was blown up. Now this 16mm film showed some pictures of flying vehicles in operation. And we also knew through intelligence that by the end of the war, the Germans built eight very large cargo submarines specially built and they were all commissioned, launched and proceeded to disappear without a trace. To this day we have no idea where they went. They are not on the bottom of the ocean nor at any port that we know of. 
But the mystery might have been solved by this Australian documentary film, which shows large German cargo submarines in the Antarctic with ice flows all around them and crews standing on deck waiting for waiting for a tie-up. There's been underground information that has come to light that some of the research facilities in German Germany were taken to a place called New Schwabenland. Now, Germany was called Schwabenland before it was called Germany. So, we're talking about New Germany when we say New Schwabenland. And, of course, it's located in the South Pole, formerly called Queen Maudlin. Now, back around 1937, there was convened an international conference under the League of Nations at the time to decide to restrict new claims to land in Antarctica. At the time, everyone seemed to have a claim except Germany, who had not staked out a claim but only had some research going on down there. The whole thing was designed to keep Germany from making a land claim as the Nazis were coming into power. The, they refused to recognize the German land claims, which were shown on German maps. Now, some years ago, National Geographic showed the German claim on a map for the first time. But back in 1939, Goring led an expedition to the Antarctic, including a submarine force, and they took construction and digging equipment down there, and they began excavating this big tunnel complex. And this activity might have been going on since that time. If that's the case, it could be a sizable complex. That may be where the big cargo submarines are. It's believed that at least one or more of the disk research facilities were taken to Antarctica. There's my creepy clock. We had information that one was taken to the Amazon and that another was taken to the north coast of Norway where there's a strong German population. Those were taken into secretly maintained underground facilities. Before World War II, the Germans had military advisors all over South America. And when it got to the end of the war, the Allies persuaded countries in South America to give up German advisors and accept American ones. Now, down there they still prefer the Germans and they never really liked the Americans. And it's quite possible that some of this material and some of the research facilities were decentralized to South America as the German Empire began to collapse. Big companies like IG Farben and the German subsidiary of General Electric opened a large subsidiary plants in Rio and Sao Paulo in Brazil. And some of these new facilities became larger that they had been in Germany. So would there have been support capability for the disk research from these? Well, the answer is yes. So one has to wonder how much truth there really is to all this. 
It appears that some of the craft we see today are nothing more than further developments of German disc technology. So we may in fact be visited periodically, not by aliens, but by Germans. So you have to wonder how much we are observing is man-made and how much is truly extraterrestrial technology. Certainly there's some of both, but we don't know what the percentages are. So, in conclusion for tonight's episode, this is what I'd like to say. Hitler's Germany was extremely interested in Antarctica beginning in the 30s. Many historians attribute this to a cultist background of the upper echelons of the Nazi party, some of whom were members of the so-called Thule Society. In studying translations of old Tibetan, Indian, and Greek texts, they came to believe that the earth is hollow and inhabited within. Ultima Thule is supposed to have been the name of the capital city of the continent Hyperborea, older than Atlantis. According to Thule texts, the Hyperboreans were highly technologically and socially advanced. The continent was located in the Norwegian Sea and sunk over the progression of an ice age. During the catastrophe, the Hyperboreans dug large tunnels through the Earth's crust using giant machines and settled under what today is the Himalayas. It's said that they named their new kingdom Agartha or Agarti and its capital city Shambhala. The current Dalai Lama, as well as Lamas from Mongolia and Tibet, claim to have known this subterranean kingdom along with the Lord of the World living there. Over the millennia, the subterranean kingdom has supposedly spread below the earth throughout the entire surface with giant centers under the Sahara uh, and the Yucatan in Mexico, Mount Shasta in Northern California, and many others. Members of the Thule Society hoped to make contact with these fabled inner earth civilizations sending out various expeditions to Tibet, the Andes, uh, the Matogaso, and to the North and South Poles where they suspected openings to the earth's interior to be located. Their belief was influenced by old text, clandestine knowledge of secret societies, and through observations of the laws of nature, where they found hollow bodies everywhere, in cells, the ovum, atoms, comets, etc., etc., etc. Even the hermetics helped convince them that the earth must be a hollow body with their law as above, so below, and, and as within, so without. So the macrocosm is the microcosm and vice versa. Their beliefs were further supported by odd reports from polar explorers. For example, the discovery of a warming wind north of the 76th parallel and the fact that birds and other animals are drawn in the direction of the pole, although it's allegedly cold and inhospitable there. They also found gray and colored snow, which revealed volcanic ash and flower pollen when it was thawed. Along with giant animals frozen in ice when they identified as mammoths, their belief was, was intensified. They said these mammoths' bellies were full of grass, fresh grass. 
There was also reports of Arctic explorers having seen a diffuse second sun. In the middle of November 1938, a preparation began for a German and Arctic expedition, and it was underway when Richard Evelyn Byrd arrived in Hamburg as a guest guest of the Polar Shipping Association to present his Antarctica film with Byrd at the South Pole. Of the 82 people in the audience, 54 were future members of the ship's crew. They were there for training purposes because Admiral Byrd had all but flown over the South Pole in 1929. And just a few weeks later, on December 17, 1938, the MS Schwabenland, an aircraft carrier under the command of Alfred Reiser, set sail for the Nazis' Antarctica expedition, reaching Antarctica on January 19, 1939. With the help of steam-powered catapults, the ship was capable of sending 10-ton aircraft into flight. The pilots flew over a territory of about 600,000 square kilometers in North Antarctica, roughly the size of the Third Reich at that time, and they photographed nearly 350,000 square kilometers. In flight, the aircraft discharged, discharged aluminum rods bearing swastika flags every 25 kilometers and named the region that they had claimed New Schwabenland. After the war, this region was annexed by the Norwegians and named Queen Maudland. There are numerous contradictory assumptions with regards to the true goal of the expedition. The obvious German disinformation propagandized by Goring claims that the expedition served to secure food supply for the German people in the event of war, the waters around the Antarctic then teeming with whales. After the Swabenland expedition returned home to Germany in early 1939, continuing orders were issued by to Karl von Donitz, supreme commander of the U-boat fleet. The mission he and his men were to carry out is still today 90% speculation based on 10% information. What is known for certain is that an increasing frequency of German U-boats began setting off in the direction of the South Pole from that point on in order to carry out missions that remain a secret even to this day. Two alleged statements from Karl von Donitz are riddles, the first of which reads, My U-boat operators discovered a real earthly paradise. Von Donitz made the second statement in 1943 at the height of the German-Russian War, and is no less mysterious. Germany's U-boat fleet can be proud that they've built an impenetrable forces, fortress for the Fuhrer on the other side of the world. What was von Donitz talking about? Did he mean Antarctica, or maybe even the southern region of South America? After all, that is where Hitler escaped to, according to various sources. And that, my friends, is what I'll be discussing in next month's episode of Parareality Radio. So make sure that you turn on, tune in, and find out. Right now, it is way past time for me to take a break. So I'm going to break it out here, and I'm going to let you listen to a little bit of music. I will be back shortly, and we will wind up the show with... 
the paranormal review. So enjoy this and I'll be back in just a little bit. This is Parareality Radio, your information source for all things paranormal. Join your host Sandman and his roster of special guests, experts, and experiencers as they explore the realms of the known and the unknown. New shows broadcast the first Monday of every month at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Listen online at parareality.com. Turn on. Tune in. And find out. Do you want to get in touch with the show? Got a comment about tonight's episode? Maybe you've got an idea for a topic for a future episode. Email me, sandman at parareality.com. Leave a message on the studio line at 615-692-1170. Listen to new episodes of Parareality Radio the first Monday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time online at parareality.com. Turn on, tune in, and find out.
Welcome back to the show, and as the intro said, it is time for the Paranormal Review. This episode, I'm going to be reviewing what is arguably one of the most controversial shows on the History Channel, uh, as if they don't have enough controversial shows on there to start off with, Uh, but this is probably one of the most controversial shows, Uh, and I'm talking about Ancient Aliens, and it uh, originally started on the History Channel and moved to the H2 channel last year, I believe it was, and it is, personally speaking, one of my favorite paranormal-type topics, if you could, And, and when I use the word paranormal, I just don't use it to mean ghosts and uh, hauntings and spirits and poltergeists and stuff like that. To me, the word paranormal is a all-encompassing word when it comes to things outside of the normal range. Because the, the word para or the prefix para, depending upon how you look at it uh, 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 or where, where you come from, means either by the side of or uh, beyond. So we're either talking about something that exists in a realm beside the normal or in a plane above the normal. Either way, it's not normal. And to me, the word paranormal encompasses all things that are not, well, normal. Uh, Not just ghosts and spirits and poltergeists, but... Aliens and UFOs and and uh, conspiracy theories and and all kind of weird things, and that's why uh, one of the reasons why I named the radio show or the podcast Para Reality because it's not in the world of reality necessarily. Some of the things that I talk about exist by the side. Of reality or above the reality. So anyway, I'm getting a way off topic. I'm supposed to be doing the paranormal review on ancient aliens. So let me get into the paranormal review, okay? <clears throat> well, here is the plot, if you could call this show having a plot. Ancient Aliens is an interview type show featuring a number of different ancient astronaut theorists, each who presents hypothesis of ancient astronauts and proposes that historical texts, archaeology, and legends contain evidence of past human extraterrestrial contact. Now, at STARS, uh, the main guy is Giorgio Sukulos. It also has appearances by uh, Jason Martell, Eric Von Daniken, the late Philip Coppins, and, and a host, just a, a, a bevy of other ancient alien theorists. Uh, Not just relegated to ancient alien theory. Uh, Some of them are UFO um, enthusiasts. Uh, Some of these people are scientists and religious experts. Uh, There are a whole 
bevy of people who make regular appearances on Ancient Aliens. But the, the core group would have to be Giorgio Sukulos, Jason Martell, Eric Von Daniken, and the late-mentioned uh, Philip Coppins. Um, also, uh, oh, God, I can't remember the guy's name. Oh, I can't remember. I can't, can't remember this guy's name. David, uh, David Hatcher. Is it David Hatcher? The guy that was uh, some kind of alien presence. I just, you know, the guy with a weird voice. I can't, he, he's a, a staple on there too. God forgive me, uh, for forgetting your name. Jesus Christ. I can't remember. I can't believe I forgot that. Anyway, he's one of the regulars on there as well. So <clears throat> here's my review of this show. Anyone familiar with History Channel series Ancient Aliens can understand the double-edged sword that's presented to us. We're set up to believe that beings from other worlds came here and either altered history or actually calculated it for us. On the surface, this may not be anything more disturbing than thinking, okay, so the Egyptian pyramids were built by guys from Orion. However, once you start really like deep, deeply thinking about this, it does change the very fabric of what it means to be human beings on this planet. So let's suppose that these ancient alien theorists and some of these people are unseen experts constantly referred to on the show. Let's assume that, that these ancient alien theorists, that they are correct. <clears throat> Long ago, aliens came to Earth and manipulated our DNA. They let themselves be worshipped as gods. They taught us how to do things like metallurgy and masonry. They gave us language, alphabets. They showed us how to build things, some very big things. And basically change the course of human history. If we accept any or all of these things, then the whole notion that we rose above the, the beast of the fields on our own is a lie. And furthermore, the concept that some of us believe from the Bible that we were chosen by God to be special among all of the creatures of the earth that's incorrect, too. Now, all of this can cause you to have some sleepless nights if you really start to think about it. The show is very well adept at getting under your skin and making it crawl. They dig up these experts, among them Eric Von Daniken, who authored the famous book Chariots of the Gods, who this guy is either... <clears throat> He's either crazy as hell or sly as a fox. I don't, I don't know which one. He's been promoting his own theory of ancient visitations by aliens for years. And this is the ultimate forum for him and others like him who want to stoke the fires of these theories. If you watch the show just even for a little bit, just for a few minutes, it's... It's really easy to get sucked in. They take you to all these exotic locations in pursuit of these places where the aliens may have been, or according to the ancient astronaut theorists, actually were. It's easy 
to look at things and think, you know, humans could never have done this by themselves, which is basically what this show is about in, in every episode. It also makes us seem ineffectual, you know, that had, uh, I don't know, Xandar and his millions, minions, you know, from Orion's belt, if they hadn't have visited Earth, then we'd still be walking around in loincloths and hitting each other over the head with the clubs and, you know, not having a language or being able to, to write anything down. So it does kind of make us as a human race seem a little bit um, not as great as what uh, we think we are. So my biggest question as I watched this series is why, if they came here and were so interested in human affairs, why did they leave? Why did these ancient aliens leave? Why didn't they stay to see the seeds that they planted here on this planet grow? In some episodes, like uh, Roswell, Strange Abductions, and Aliens and Cover-Ups, uh, there, are, there are answers to these questions to some degree. Uh, theory ends up being that aliens may have never left at all, that they are still watching us. And they may even walk among us. Now, I'm not so sure about that. Um, <clears throat> they even, uh, you know, hint that uh, one day they will return, although no one really knows when. And those that say they they do know, they quote-unquote do know when they were going to return, they are not very forthcoming with the information, which is very suspect in my opinion, even though I like this show. If you supposedly knew when these people were going to return, why wouldn't you announce it? For fear of looking like a dumbass, maybe? <laughs> or maybe you don't really know. Well, anyway, Ancient Aliens, it, it, it isn't for everyone. But, but if you have enjoyed science fiction books or movies like Prometheus or Predator, this is probably the show for you. Even if you just enjoy history itself this is a really good show for you because even though the history that they present is a a different one than mainstream history they still take you to the, all these exotic locations and and you get to see uh, uh um places that you would not get ordinarily get to travel to unless i don't know you've got you know you hit the lottery and you have millions of dollars to waste so even, even if you just kind of like history or, or archaeology. This is a really good show for you. It's a slick production and the commentators will, they'll send a chill down your spine if you listen long enough. I know when I go outside at night, sometimes I look up at the stars and I think about what these people have said on the show and I think about what I've read in their books and I wonder if the aliens will come back and make themselves known in some kind of a significant way. I mean, if they helped the Egyptians build the pyramids, why don't they help us build spaceships that can go to their planet at the speed of light, or better yet, teach us how to end hunger, cancer, and prevent war? Then they would be seen as benevolent beings who really do love us, wouldn't they? 
the problem with the show with ancient aliens, <clears throat> excuse me, the problem with ancient aliens is what I like to call the Prometheus factor. In other words, the aliens did plant the seeds, go away, and didn't like what grew here. So that's kind of a scary proposition. You know, when you look up at the stars and you think, did the aliens really help shape our, our planet? Did they not like what they, what they quote unquote grew? Did they not like what they made and then leave? So if they do come back, what are we going to get? Are we going to get something like E.T. the Extraterrestrial or The Thing, John Carpenter? Interesting stuff to think about. Regardless, it is a very well put together show, has some very good information. And if you are like me, um, an ancient alien theorist, and I am, I, I do think that, that aliens came here in the past and helped shape uh, some of what we we do or have done, um, then this is the show for you. If you, like I said earlier, if you just like history, if you like archaeology, if you like science, this is the show for you. Even though what they're presenting some people would call pseudo-history or pseudo-science or whatever, it's really a very well put together show, very well engineered, very well thought out. And it's a great production. So overall, I would give Ancient Aliens a score of 5 out of 5. And that's the second time that I've managed to get a, a 5 out of 5 score on my scoring system. But it is very well worth the watch if you have never seen it. <coughs> Excuse me, i got the coughs now. Uh, I suggest... You know, just check it out. You know, there are some people who um, their thing is is ghosts, you know, and they don't care anything about aliens and cryptozoology and stuff like that. And there are some people who are they're into the cryptozoology and they don't care anything about aliens and ghosts. And of course, you have the people who are into aliens and UFOs and this shows right up their alley and they don't care anything about, you know, the others. And you've got the rare people like me who are, and I say I'm a rare person because I'm kind of interested in it all. Um, I really enjoy this show. And, and if if you aren't a fan of Ancient Aliens or you've never given it a try, I suggest that you sit down and watch a couple of episodes uh, because it is a very, very good show. As a matter of fact, all of the seasons that they have on DVD, I own. So if you... Uh, if you want me to illegally burn you a copy, I'm not condoning that. Uh, if you would like for me to provide you a copy for your personal enjoyment, let me know. Send me an email, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll get you a copy of an episode or two, so you can watch it. So that's the paranormal review, Ancient Aliens, five out of five. Check it out if you haven't checked it out. You really should. And if you check it out and you don't like it, then um. I don't know what to tell you. Shame on you, I guess. I don't know. I have no idea what to tell you. I, I, I personally like it. I've got a uh, friend of mine who is uh, um, a skeptic. And 
he enjoys ancient aliens uh, because it takes him, you know, he gets to learn some historical uh, facts because they do present a lot of accurate historical facts. And then they go kind of off the deep end and say, you know, aliens built this or whatever. But anyway, they they do uh, have some historical facts. And my, my skeptic friend actually likes the show for the the history and the archaeology and stuff like that. So, like I said, you don't have to be a um, an ancient astronaut theorist or uh, ufologist or anything of that nature to enjoy the show. As a, as a matter of fact, uh, my unnamed friend that I was just talking about, I had him over at my house a um, couple of nights ago, and we had a little mini ancient aliens uh, marathon. They're, they had these things called special edition shows where they're presenting some, I don't know, unaired footage or something like that. I don't know, but I had DVR'd a couple of, uh, couple of those episodes, and he came over, and we had dinner, and sat down, and watched a couple of those episodes of ancient alien special edition and kind of debated some stuff and dissected some stuff and, uh, just had a good old time. So like I said, you don't really have to be a, 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 a ufologist or a believer in aliens or even a believer in the ancient astronaut theory itself to enjoy the show. So you should check it out. Like I said, five out of five, really good show. You're going to need to do yourself a favor check it out so that does it for the paranormal review and i've got about 15 minutes worth of show left so uh <clears throat> i wanted to address i've had a, a a few people uh ask me why in the hell am i doing a, a three episode series my summer series as i call it why, why in the hell am i doing a summer series on the nazis and and the paranormal connection. And, well, I thought I would, since I've got a little extra time, and I really didn't know, I wasn't for sure at the start of the show, if you remember, if I was going to have any extra time, and I've got plenty of it. So I thought that since I do have plenty of, of extra time, that I would address these questions and, well, answer them. Um, so... To those of you who have asked me why I'm doing a three-part series on the Nazi paranormal connection, um, here's, here's your answer. Number one, I, since, gosh, as far back as I can remember, since I was a, a, a young kid, um, was always... Uh, uh, fascinated with World War II and the Revolutionary War. Uh, not so much the Civil War, but the Revolutionary War and World War II, especially World War II. Um, and I was also um, very fascinated with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Now, before you start going off on a deep end and saying that Sandman is a skinhead or an anti-Semite or something like that. Let me explain myself here. Why I was so interested in Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, not that I was am a fan of the man, but I have always been fascinated at how 
one person can enthrall a nation and basically uh, brainwash a whole entire nation and get them behind him and allow him to do all the atrocities that he did. Um, He was a very intelligent man. Unfortunately, he was also kind of crazy, you know, especially the, the more power he got, the more crazy he became. And it is true that old saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, you know, he, he really went nuts. And for all the evil things that he did, he did do some good for Germany, but all those things, unfortunately, take a back seat because of all the evil that he did. But the the reason I'm so fascinated with him is, is because of what he was able to accomplish and how he was able to, um, uh, brainwash an entire nation. And I've, I've watched some of his speeches and it's hard to watch this, just hard to understand his speeches because I don't speak German, but the, the way that he was speaking was just absolutely just uh, you know it it was mesmerizing and so i read a lot about world war ii and uh nazi germany adolf hitler as i was growing up and and studied some things and and uh, the more i learned about the nazis the more i found out how much they were into um all of this occult stuff and this paranormal stuff and, and how they were basically trying to rewrite German history and, and make it seem like that they were descendants of Atlantis of the Aryan nation and all this other sorts of stuff. And I, I really got to um, see how much into the occult and, and alternate science and all this other sorts of stuff they were. And then I started studying that about, the Nazis and um, Himmler was probably the one who was the biggest into it more so than anyone else. And uh, I kind of was like, wow, I didn't, you know, this is a really eye opening subject. So, you know, I've been a, uh, uh, um, I guess a, the, the proper word was uh, a student of World War II. Since um, since I was a kid, and I, I don't know everything there is to know about it. Don't, don't get me wrong. I just I'm just very interested, and in I watched you know a lot of documentaries, read a lot of books, um, loved it when I was uh, in my history class in school. You know, um, so by no means do I consider myself an expert. So don't, don't get me wrong. I just have read a lot about World War II and studied a lot about it, read a lot of books, and like I said, seen a lot of movies and documentary type movies. <clears throat> So I thought, you know, as as when I was doing my my radio program through the years, um, I never thought about doing a show on the Nazi paranormal connection. And then one time, I decided to do a show on Hitler and the Spear of Destiny, and this was many years ago. And uh, I actually got really really good reviews on that. And so I had always wanted, ever since then, to bring back some stuff and and I have 
over the course of the years done a show here and there. And I finally decided, uh, you know, I'm just going to do, I just want to do a series on the Nazi paranormal connection. So there you go. That's why I decided to do this series. So, so far, the first episode, we talked about Daglaka or the bell. This episode was about the secret Nazi UFO Antarctic base. And we're going to wind up next month with the third and final in the series, which is did Adolf Hitler survive World War II? And although really that doesn't have the quote unquote paranormal connection, such as the, the bell and the UFO base, uh, it does fall into the realm of conspiracy theories. So, you know, it fits right in with my whole going back to what I was talking about with the paranormal or the para reality aspect of, of everything. So that's what we're going to wind up the show next, the uh, series with next month in August is did Hitler survive world war two? Well, everybody that is doing it for the show. I'm going to wind things down. Got less than 10 minutes left in the show. Oh, and by the way, I've also had some people uh, email me and say, whatever happened to uh, the guy who was uh, calling you about the chemtrails and sent you uh, an email and stuff? Well, I I still haven't heard back from him, so I don't know. It's maybe I'll never hear from him again. I don't know. Was it a a one-off, a fluke? I don't know, but I haven't heard back from this guy. Um, Hoping maybe he's still still around, still listening to an episode or two here or there. Um, But I haven't heard back from him in a while. So at this point, you know, um, no news is good news. I don't know. Um, Maybe the chemtrail... Maybe he died from inhaling too much chemtrails or the government kind of... I don't know, man. I just know that I haven't heard back from him. But I'm still keeping an eye out. I'm still checking the emails and checking my phone messages and still haven't heard anything from him yet. But it, trust me, as soon as I do, I will let you guys know. I'll keep you posted on him. All right, so I hope to hear back from him sometime in the future. We'll see. Everybody, I hope that you enjoyed tonight's show. Let me know what you thought about it by sending an email to sandman at parareality.com. Also, visit the website, www.parareality.com. That's where you can find out all kinds of information about the show. You can listen to current and past episodes while you're there. And if you click on the Extras tab, you can join the official Parareality Radio Forum. Shop in the Parareality Radio store, and even watch some show videos and other stuff while you're there. I've got, uh, every once in a while I'll post my video from my very short-lived and ill-conceived internet television show, which was horrible. Uh, I make no qualms about how horrible it was, but I still did it, and uh, I think I have 13 episodes, and I'm still supposed to... I still owe three episodes out there that I don't even know that I'm gonna gonna do. I was I was contracted for 16 episodes and I still owe three. So we'll we'll see what happens. Maybe I can uh, 
I don't know. I'm not even going to talk about it. <laughs> uh, also, don't forget to look me up on Facebook. That's Sandman dot Parareality on Facebook. You can listen to the show there on my Facebook page as well, and you can also find out more about what's going on in the world of Parareality and get some maybe some behind the scenes stuff and all that good jazz. So uh, that does it for the show. My next episode is going to be on Monday, August the 4th, 2014. And of course, I've already said it's going to be the final series, the final show, the final episode in three-part series, The Nazi Paranormal Connection. And we're going to be talking about Did Hitler Survive World War II? So make sure you turn on, tune in, and find out on Monday, August the 4th, 2014. That's 8 o'clock p.m. Central U.S. Time. <clears throat> I hope that this radio program opens your mind up to new ways of thinking, expands your consciousness, and produces a change in the way that you see the world. If you wish to change, you must lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. I hope you have a wonderful evening, and I will see you again next month. And I'm going to let you listen to a little bit of uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, of course, Black Label Society with Black Sunday. I'm going to take you home with that. We'll see you next month.
Station.